The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I'd like to start our show off today with a small correction, and every once in a while, uh, we do make a mistake on the show, and when we do make a mistake, I do want to be sure that we second the record straight. In our discussion last week about uh, Sheridan Prasso's article in Bloomberg, I mentioned that Huawei did not comment on the article, and uh, the folks at Huawei were kind enough to reach out to me and to remind me that they actually did, that their spokesperson in Lusaka did provide comment to her. And I guess I was just kind of channeling my 25 years of journalism experience with Chinese companies where they typically... Uh, do not uh, respond very well to the media and often say no comment. But in this particular case, I overlooked the fact that they did. And for that, I am very sorry, both to Huawei and to our listeners. So I just wanted to make sure uh, that correction's on the record before we get uh, get started today. Okay, Kobus. So today we're going to be talking about the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. We said in our year-end program last year that this was going to be one of the defining themes of this year. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that that is absolutely true, particularly because the U.S.-China relationship is undergoing what, I don't know quite how to say it, but it is a profound change. Some people call it a decoupling. Some people call it a, you know, this is a tension that we haven't seen in the 40 years of the modern Chinese era. And I think by understanding where we are in U.S.-China relations, we will understanding how we got to the John Bolton speech uh, John Bolton, of course, is the U.S. National Security Advisor, who gave uh, a speech in December that outlined what the U.S. is calling their Prosper Africa, Prosper Africa strategy. And a lot of people felt that the strategy had a lot more to do with China and a little bit to do with Russia and a lot less to do with Africa itself. So by understanding the U.S.-China relationship, we can get to the bottom of what's going on with Africa. And the key question we're going to look at tonight is, is the United States involved in a new Cold War with China. And the reason why this is relevant for Africa is because we recall from the last time the United States was involved in a Cold War, it had a very lasting, painful legacy that we're still feeling today on Africa. I mean, Africa in a lot of ways is still trying to get over the old Cold War. You know, some of, some of the, because in the first place one has to, you know, for the for those of our, for our listeners who are not very, uh, you know, up on on African history, the Cold War in Africa was not cold. It, you know, it was it was a proxy war uh, where Soviet and, and U.S. funded um, forces engaged in civil wars right across the continent. So a lot of what now, what I think external Africa watches or, or people just, you know, the way that people think about Africa is that Africa is just simply underdeveloped. Um, a lot of that underdevelopment was actually the result of of 
these conflicts and also the, the disruptive influence of these conflicts. Um, so, you know, a lot of, you know, situations like Africa lacking infrastructure, for example, was directly exacerbated by those conflicts. Um, and so... You know, kind of Africa. Africa's underdevelopment, if if you know, is isn't isn't a simple kind of result of just African mistakes. You know, a lot of it has to do with these kind of international forces. And that's why I think Africans are more than many other people very, very aware of of the implications, the historical implications of language like a, a Cold War. I was at a conference last week and several students from Fudan University in Shanghai came up to me and started asking me about U.S.-China relations. And they said, what is going on in Washington? And they were shocked when I told them the views that I am hearing directly from think tank people, professors, scholars, NGO people. I'm in regular touch with people in Washington. And it's hard to express to Chinese people the level of distrust that exists now in Washington, the frustration. There's a, and it's a gut emotional feeling that a lot of Americans have about China. They feel that they have been lied to. They feel that they have been disrespected. They feel they've been cheated. They feel that the cyber espionage that continues to haunt the United States is wrong on every level. And at the end of the day, there is no trust left from the point of view of the Americans. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. and China are having such a difficult time right now in these trade talks is because the United States just doesn't believe anything that the Chinese are saying. So how do we get here and where does we go from here? So there's four real possibilities that play out in the U.S.-China relationship right now. China either continues to go its own way and succeeds. It fails and falls off the rails and the economy just the wheels come off. Or does it do this with armed conflict or not on conflict? Those are the four outcomes that happen. And it's a little bit scary when we consider that in history, according to Graham Allison, a Harvard scholar, there's something called what he says is the Theocides trap. I think I said that right. Which is when an incumbent power is challenged by a rising power, most of the time, 12 out of 16 times, according to Graham Allison, it results in war. Now, that's what a lot of people think, and that seems to be what's playing out. Now, it could be a hot war, and it could be a cold war. So the question we're going to ask today, are we in a new cold war between the United States and China? Now, this is the question that Ali Wein, who is a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation in Washington, he recently asked. And so we thought it would be a great opportunity for us to start our discussion in 2019 on U.S.-China-Africa relationships by looking at this question of, are we in a new cold war? So, Ali, thank you so much for joining us very, very early from Washington. And we're very excited to be able to get the view from D.C. as to what's going on right now. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you wrote this article for RAND, and you've written a series of articles on this question of where we are in the current U.S.-China relationship. Um, and one article you wrote for The Diplomat, questioning the presumption of a U.S.-China power transition, and that has a lot to do with Graham Allison's theory of the Theocides trap. Mm -hmm. And then you posed the question as to whether or not we are in a new Cold War. So let's go. Let's just not beat around the bush here. Get right into it. <laughs> uh, answer that question and be. Let's get an answer out of you. All right. Do well, you I, think I today try. we are in the? Uh, are, are we in now in something resembling a new Cold War? 
So my, the, the, the bottom line up front is my answer is no. And now let me, now let me be somewhat evasive. Now that, now that you've pinned me down and gotten an answer out of me, <laughs> let me, let, let me see if I can you know, delve a little bit more deeply into the question. So, so my feeling is that while the analogy is compelling at first glance, it begins to break down under closer scrutiny. Uh, so are we beginning to see the, or I shouldn't say are we beginning to see, are we witnessing a the emergence of a long-term multifaceted competition between the United States and China? Unquestionably. And it is a competition that is centered around economics and technology, but also, of course, has military dimensions, increasingly has ideological dimensions. And so when we think of a long-term multifaceted bilateral competition, naturally, uh, observers in, in Washington and elsewhere harken back to competition between Washington and Moscow during the Cold War. But, but let me offer a few reasons why I, I think the analogy is, is misguided. Uh, the first is that the Soviet Union was an existential challenger. Uh, the Soviet Union uh, had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons uh, deployed in Washington's direction. It was it had it had pretensions to a universal ideology. It was fomenting revolution and chaos uh, across the world uh, with the intent of promulgating its communist ideology. So the Soviet Union and and also the Soviet Union didn't harbor any thoughts of sustained peaceful cohabitation with the United States. Uh, the it, it was very much a zero sum rivalry. When I look at the U.S. China relationship, by contrast. I think it's certainly accurate to portray China as a resurgent competitor, a formidable competitor, and certainly more economically uh, powerful than the Soviet Union ever was, even at the peak of its power. But I see Beijing as a selective revisionist. I don't see Beijing as posing a frontal assault on the post-war order. And, and what I mean by that is that there are elements of the post-war order that China certainly seeks to revise and is working to change, but it's doing so from within the system. Uh, there, it's, it's notable that China is agitating for greater representation, for example, within the Bretton Woods institutions. It's notable that China is one of the, uh, one of the greatest deployers of UN humanitarian peacekeepers. So some of the agitation for reform is coming from within. There are certain elements of the order that China uh, is agnostic about. And then outside of the order, China is establishing, you could say, sort of a parallel architecture. So we look at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. We look at the Belt and Road Initiative. We look at the progress that China is making on the regional comprehensive economic partnership. But China is a selective revisionist, number one. Number two, because the core of the rivalry is economic and technological, as opposed to military and ideological, I'm not saying that those elements don't exist. I'm just saying that they aren't as salient as they were in the U.S.-Soviet case. I think that there is a little bit more room for cooperation between the two countries, however begrudging. Uh, another reason I think that the analogy is limited is that I mean, the United States and the Soviet Union presided over uh, satellites. They presided over blocks of ideologically aligned satellites. And the idea that during the Cold War, a country that had not, like India, so India declared itself non-aligned, but the idea that a country that had not declared itself explicitly to be non-aligned could toggle back and forth between Washington and Moscow would have been inconceivable. Whereas today, the vast majority of countries, while recognizing that they may one day have to make some fateful choice between the United States and China, they've been pretty adept at, 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 at toggling back and forth. I mean, you look at Japan, 
Japan obviously values its security relationship with the United States above all, and that relationship is of paramount importance, but it continues to increase its commercial linkages with Beijing. And so-called middle countries that are caught between these two giants, the United States and China, they are uh, they are managing the they're managing U.S. Co- uh, China competition. They're not uh, being forced to make a choice. And one last point, and, and there are other there are other differences between contemporary U.S.-China competition and Cold War era U.S.-Soviet competition that I can get into if you would be interested. But one last difference, and I, I think it, it's it's an important difference. The United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, they really had very little in the way of significant socioeconomic exchanges. Uh, But if you look at the United States and China today, China accounts for roughly one third of all international students who are enrolled at American institutions of higher learning. Uh, The United States and China have a very robust economic relationship. So two-way trade runs into the hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Uh, and the United States and China are also bound by very complex global supply chains. So, so those are a few reasons. But when I look at the competition between the United States and China, it seems to me that the limitations of the analogy at first glance are more, are more readily evident, at least to me, than, than the merits of the analogy. You know, it's, it's so interesting to, to listen to you listing all of these factors, which I all agree with. And, and yet we, you know, when, as Eric introduced it at the beginning, there is also what seems to be a kind of a, a very low level of trust in China, in, in, in the U.S. at the moment. And that, that level of trust isn't just among the Republicans or among, you know, kind of Trump government people. Um, it, it seems to also, it seems to have some kind of echo on, on, demo, on the Democratic side as well. It seems to be that, you know, across, across a wide spectrum of, of uh, sectors of American society and the American elite, there seems to be all of this, this kind of drumbeat of, of, you know, kind of distrust in China or, um, you know, kind of raising lots of lots of different kind of related issues um, and concerns about China. So is this, so, so if, if, you know, to, to which extent, uh, you know, or let, let me rather say, kind of how, how do you bring the two of these together? Because, you know, kind of if, if you look at the economic realities, you know, you have all of these interlinkages and those interlinkages, let's be clear, I think has gen- have generally been quite profitable to the U.S., you know, I mean, I think you know, you you one one did see a lot of 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 jobs migrating to China, and of course that has had lots of impacts on certain sectors of the U.S. population of U.S. population. But generally, I mean, American companies made a lot of money by manufacturing in China. So, um, you know, so so it, so how do you bring those two together? How, how how is there both this kind of Cold War narrative, you know, kind of getting a lot of support from a lot of different sectors of the U.S. elite, and yet this incredibly interlinked. Um, and thriving, you know, uh, economic relationship. It's well, it's you make you make a really important point, and it is difficult to reconcile the the emergence of, and the strengthening in Washington of this Cold War narrative, and I should say this the the emergence and strengthening of, of a Cold War narrative in Beijing as well. And it's hard to reconcile the emergence and strengthening of those narratives with with the complexity of the U.S. China relationship. But there are a few. I don't know that they can necessarily be reconciled, but let me let me let me offer a few thoughts. The first is that the Soviet, so the United States, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, it quickly decided in in the in the policy establishment, it quickly converged upon designating the Soviet Union as an antagonist, not as a complex competitor, not as a 
challenging upstart, but is an antagonist. And an antagonist, of course, if you, there's the seminal essay by George Kennan. He was writing in foreign affairs in 1947 under, this, under the pseudonym of Mr. X. But, but Kennan lays out what, what intellectually, the, the intellectual grist for what becomes containment. And if you read his essay, uh, it's, it's very stark reading it in retrospect. He, he doesn't harbor the possibility that the United States and the Soviet Union can be can be peaceful, long-term cohabitants. He says that the Soviet Union seeks the dissolution of all forms of rival power and that the United States needs to pursue a policy of containment that, uh, that aims to bring about changes or that, that aims to induce dynamics within the Soviet Union that either bring about a mellowing of Soviet power or bring about its ultimate dissolution. If you look at if you look at America's discussion about China today, one of the, the difficulties is that while, so think of a spectrum, think of a spectrum between ally and adversary. It's obvious from the emerging narrative in Washington that, that folks, and as you said, this is not really an ideological issue, both Republicans and Democrats increasingly see China in competitive terms. And I suspect that most, most uh, policymakers and most observers across ideological lines would place China closer towards the adversary or antagonist uh, end of the spectrum, but they haven't. But the die has not been cast yet. They have not. In other words, because we have these socioeconomic exchanges, because China is a partner on important issues, whether it is dealing with climate change, whether it is managing macroeconomic stability in world affairs, but because China is a partner, however begrudging on certain issues, because there are very robust socioeconomic linkages, because China is a selective revisionist as opposed to a country that is posing a frontal assault on the post-war order, it's difficult for Washington to characterize China in stark terms. So we can say that China, that we are entering a long-term competition with China and that China is increasingly frustrating for the United States. But it's difficult to say in stark, unalloyed terms, China is an antagonist. It's more complicated. And actually, I would argue that because China is more complicated, uh, because China is a selective revisionist, I think that in some ways China actually poses a more formidable long-term challenge uh, uh, for uh, for the United States. And it's interesting, actually, that if you look at polling data, I, I, would, I would actually make the case that the American public is not as sold on the Cold War narrative as the policymaking establishment is. So if you look at recent polling data, whether it's by the Pew Research Center, uh, by Gallup, by, by other respected polling organizations, I think that Americans, they, are, they, have, they, they, they don't necessarily have warm feelings about China, but they don't have stark feelings about China. So they, they don't look at China in the same way that they look at that, or that they think about, say, North Korea or Iran or the Islamic State. So their feelings are, are decidedly mixed, whereas the policymaking establishment seems to be more uh, converging more in, in the direction of a new Cold War. So, so I agree with you that there are certainly tensions between the narratives that are emerging and the realities of the U.S.-China relationship. But my, here's my fear. Uh, and, and one of the impetuses for my writing the piece that you referenced about whether or not the United States and China have entered into a new Cold War, my concern is that, um, and it's natural, it's human psychology that when we are charting difficult terrain, we we plumb the past for, and we we mine the past to see are there case studies or analogies or experiences that that we can draw upon to help guide our policy. And my concern is that. There is a growing, I feel that there is a growing sense in Washington 
that the Cold War is, is the apt analogy uh, and that we should draw upon our experience with the Cold War to help navigate our competition with China. And while the impulse uh, to an, uh, analogize and while the recourse to analogizing are understandable, I think that thrusting China into this role and making China out to be Soviet Union 2.0 would be very misguided. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I, I just, I, there's a disconnect between what you're saying and how you're saying it and what we're actually hearing out of the Trump administration. And I feel in some ways that you are speaking as if we are in, you know, Bush one, Bush two, Clinton, Obama, you know, that era. And not speaking, it, it's not difficult for the Bush administration to be polemic about this. I mean, he, the president himself has come out and said, that China is one of the single greatest threats to the United States. And he has come out with his America first foreign policy. John Bolton was not subtle at all in his national security strategy for prosper Africa. And so I, I just, you know, and what I'm, I mean, again, I, I just wonder if, you know, the three of us who, what Steve Bannon would, des- would describe as global elites, uh, are just missing the populist uproar. And, and, and at the core of this, I, I just want to kind of, there's, there's one very important part of this that I want to bring up. So Cobus said that American companies have profited quite well off of China, and that's true. But at the core of that, there was a lie, and a very important lie. And the lie was that free trade will benefit the guy in Akron, in Georgia, in Tennessee, in rural France, in you know, Western England that voted for Brexit. And they said, we're going to move all of the manufacturing and your blue-collar manufacturing jobs with benefits. We're going to move that to China. And there were about 150 million working-class, middle-class jobs that moved from Europe and the United States to China. And there was about 150 million new middle-class jobs that grew here in China. And the lie was, you're going to benefit from this. But the reality is, as we know from the yellow the Gilets Jaunes, the yellow jacket protest in France, as we know of the uprising with Trump, is that they never benefited from it. The corporate elites at 1% made all the money and none of it ever came down anywhere else. And that's directly tied to China as well. Now, I, th- I think you're right. The American public has, may not have connected dots A to dots B, but they, they hired Donald Trump to do that. And they voted to get out of Britain, Britain voted to get out of the European Union to do that, and now Macron is under that same pressure. Now, China may not be the th- be implicit, but it's n- explicit, but it's implicit in all of that. So, I guess my my question to you is: Are you properly reflecting the populist anger that is producing the politics of the day that are so radically different from the politics of two? two, two and a half years ago. No, you're absolutely right. And I, and I, I like the way that you actually situated, and, and, I, and I should have done so earlier, but I'll, I'll do so now. I think that it's the recalibration that we are seeing at the elite level on, on China policy. I think it's part of a, it, it does reflect, certainly in part, this, this populist or nationalist uprising, uh, one that we see uh, across many parts of the world. But I, would, I, I think it's important to situate 
resentment towards China or this recalibration towards China within a broad, within the broader currents of American thinking about foreign policy. So if I am sort of, you mentioned sort of a voter in you know, Akron, Ohio. So if I'm a voter in, in Akron, Ohio, and I surveyed the roughly the past two decades of US foreign policy. So it's in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, and we embark on on what essentially has become a campaign of permanent war. And so we are in Afghanistan uh, almost two decades on, and we have we have spilled blood, we have uh, spilled an enormous amount of treasure, or wasted an enormous amount of treasure for no clear gain, no clear strategic gain or, or gain to U.S. prosperity. We're bogged down in Iraq. Um, and so if I am... If so, so we have we have a campaign of what seems to be permanent war in the Middle East that hasn't really accrued discernible uh, economic uh, gains to the American public. Uh, we have a middle class in the United States, uh, a large segment of which has not seen a growth in real wages since the mid 1970s. We see uh, we see a policymaking establishment that at least at least prior to the ascent of of Donald Trump or the arrival of Donald Trump. We see a policymaking establishment that would often talk in abstractions. So would talk about the abstract virtues of U.S. engagement in world affairs, of U.S. leadership in world affairs, but without really making the connections between what America was doing abroad in abstract terms and how Americans were benefiting or not benefiting materially. And I think that I think that Donald Trump as a candidate and Donald Trump as president. Uh, President Trump or Donald Trump as a candidate, I think that he he tapped very adeptly into some of these anxieties that have been percolating. And I think it's important to note, and you were alluding to this, Eric, that while while the president has certainly surfaced those anxieties more vocally, and while he has been more explicit in making the case that the U.S. foreign policy making establishment has not been sufficiently responsive to the grievances of the American public. Um, he did not originate those anxieties. He tapped into them and he harnessed them. But these are anxieties that have been percolating long before. And and I think that many Americans rightly say, look, my real wages haven't been increasing. We are spending trillions of dollars in the Middle East without seeing any tangible gain. We are struggling with the scourge of opioid addiction. We are living paycheck to paycheck. So how is it that what America is doing in world affairs how is that connected to my my day-to-day life? And I, I would add that the anxieties we are witnessing are not only of an economic variant or of an economic nature, uh, there are also demographic anxieties. Uh, you have, as a result of immigration, uh, as a result of America's openness to, to people, which I believe is, is one of America's greatest assets, but you do have America's sort of founding demographic constituency uh, with declining political heft. And I think that you're seeing a backlash. So I would say, so, so point number one, you're absolutely right that, that, that Donald Trump's ascendance, political ascendance, is reflective of economic anxieties and, and demographic anxieties that had long been percolating and, and, and disquiet about America's role in the world or the prudence of U.S. foreign policy. And as for China itself, I do think that there has been a profound disillusionment across ideological boundaries. And, and similar to the conversations that you've been having, Eric, when I, when I engage with, with folks in China, I, I try to impress upon them that the recalibration that they are experiencing and that they sometimes express bewilderment at 
it is not uh, it is not novel uh, in the Trump era. This is this is a recalibration that I think had been a long time in coming. And and what are the sources of the recalibration? I think that the single greatest source of the recalibration is the collapse of this hope that greater Chinese economic integration into the world would would dampen some of its illiberalism at home and in its near abroad. That was a hope that had sustained China policy for eight administrations, really, going from Richard Nixon to Barack Obama. And that hope ha- has not materialized. So that the collapse of that hope has been a profound source of disillusionment. And so when the Trump administration, now where I think the Trump administration has, has departed from its predecessors is in its explicitness. I think the Trump administration, unlike its predecessors, has explicitly cast China in as, as, as purely a rival. I think that the, the Trump administration has explicitly challenged the proposition that economic interdependence between the United States and China has been a benefit for, for the American public. So I think that, so the, yes, the Trump administration has, and it's also been blunter in its strategy. So it has embraced a strategy of protectionism and embarking on a, a policy of tariffs under the, monor, uh, under the mantra of America first that its predecessors haven't. But the anxieties about China that it is acting upon are certainly not new to the Trump administration. Um, how do you feel this is, the, the, the tension between China and the U.S. Is, is looking from the perspective of the rest of the world? Um, it puts into question um, kind of where, you know, all of everything that the West has been saying about development um, and therefore, you know, essentially the, the, the West's case for itself or its, or its, its case for its uh, continued kind of, uh, you know, high level of influence in the world um, to the rest of the world. You know, kind of, so, so to which extent is, um, you know, can, can this be seen simply as, a containment strategy, and to which extent, you know, kind of does it reflect uh, a move towards some kind of, you know, actual fairer playing ground? Well, there's no doubt. It's it's really hard to overstate the the challenge. I would say the challenge that the whether you call it the, the you know the Chinese development model or the Chinese infrastructure infrastructure model, it's very difficult to overstate the magnitude of the challenge that that model opposes to uh, the West and in particularly the United States. Because again, it's not just the, there are two variables. It's not just the, the scale of China's economic resurgence that matters. It's also the speed with which it has occurred. So, you know, we're talking about a country that in the, you know, not too long ago in the 19, we're looking at the 1950s, late 1950s, early 1960s, I mean, here's a country that was reeling from uh, the worst famine uh, and self-made famine in human history. It was a country that was extraordinarily poor, isolated from the world. Um, and this is a country that would continue to go through convulsions in the, in the subsequent decades. So we come out of famine, then we enter the Cultural Revolution, then there is the, uh, then there's Tiananmen and the international opprobrium and isolation that China confronts in the aftermath. And, and even at the turn of the century, uh, even at the turn, I mean, I remember just by way of a brief anecdote, I remember when I began college in 2004, uh, China was, was very, very commonly lumped in with the rest of the so-called BRICS. So people would talk about it. And, and then you know, in, in the middle of my time at college, there were a lot of articles and books about Chindia. So China and India are growing at roughly the same rate. And, and, but now people don't, now in 2019, people really talk about China in a class of its own. And so this is a country that the United States used to, to look down upon 
and used to hold up as an example of a backward, uh, an isolated backwater. And now this allegedly isolated backwater in the course of just a few decades has emerged into the world's second largest economy, the world's largest exporter, the world's largest trading country. It is confidently on track to replace the United States as the world's largest economic power, at least in aggregate terms. And so that transformation is very difficult psychologically for the United States to accept. I mean, the United States, de depending on which estimates you use, the United States had the world, has had the world's largest economy for roughly 125 years. And to have that to have that title, uh, to have that title taken away by a country that we've, you know, we've grown accustomed to looking down upon, it is very psychologically distressing. As for the rest of the world, I think that the rest of the world, it's not starry-eyed about China's resurgence, and I think that we see, you know, if, if you look at some of the backlash, and in, in particular backlash to the Belt and Road Initiative, there are concerns about so-called debt trap diplomacy, or potentially even the emergence of neo-colonialism. So, so China's entry into the developing world has hardly been without challenge or without difficulty, and we are seeing backlash to their, their infrastructure development. But I do think that many countries, particularly those that are very impoverished, they look at China and say, look, we, we may not like everything that China is doing. We may not be satisfied with the quality of the infrastructure that they are provisioning, but we need infrastructure now. And you know, someone, someone was telling me the other day at work, uh, and was commenting on sort of China's geoeconomic agenda for the developing world and the sort of the comparative absence of a geoeconomic agenda from the American side. And he said to me, Ali, you can't beat something with nothing. And that is to say, whatever grievances developing countries have about uh, Chinese infrastructure development, and there are many, that the infrastructure is, 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 is substandard in, in many cases. It's entrapping countries in debt. Uh, it's, um, you know, that, that work is going to Chinese contractors as opposed to local contractors. But whatever grievances you might level against China's infrastructure development, China is at least providing infrastructure. And they say, where are the Americans? Now, you know, the, and I know that the Trump administration is, is trying to take steps to, uh, to blunt some of China's momentum. So, so Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, in the middle of last year, he you know he gave a speech about how he was making that the United States would be making a 113 million dollar down payment on infrastructure projects in the Indo-Pacific, um, and then you know more recently uh, we have st Congress you know passed legislation standing up a new agency, uh, OPEC, that has. Uh, twice the uh, twice the annual cap of its predecessor. Uh, the it's it's going to be a sixty billion dollar a sixty billion dollar cap, and that can invest not only in debt but also in equity. And so there's a hope that this new agency can 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 help restore some U.S. competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis China in terms of infrastructure. But but the point the overall point is that the the aura around Western uh, economic development models has has been punctured, and China offers if not a coherent alternative, it offers an alternative of some kind, and the United States is, is, is reeling. So what's the takeaway for our listeners in Africa or here in China or in other parts of the world uh, about this idea that if we're, in, if we're not in a new Cold War, if the United States is reeling for a lack of a response to China in places like Africa... Um, the United States is trying to come back with, the, as you talked about, the, the deployment of the new International Development Finance Corporation. But you also 
warn the Americans about not trying to out-China China. That is, don't try to beat the Chinese at their own game. Play a different game. The problem is that the United States doesn't appear to have a coherent strategy. There was a lot of expectation that when John Bolton was scheduled to give his speech about Prosper Africa, that we would get a coherent strategy. We are now going on two months since that speech, and we haven't heard any follow-up. Now, some people have said, I posted the question on Twitter, and they said, well, the reason why there isn't any follow-up is because, well, there's nobody at the State Department right now because of the furlough. The United States government, big parts of the government are shut down. So there literally is no one there to do the follow-up, which is just remarkable when you think about it in this day and age. But let's get past that. What is somebody listening to this who want, who's concerned about Africa, how should they understand the impact on them of the current dynamic in the U.S.-China relationship? Well, there's if I were if I were sitting in in Africa right now, uh, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, I would I would look I would look to U.S.-China competition with a a combination of you could say uh, excitement or interest and and concern, and and, and let me elaborate on each of those. Um, the excitement is that look. We, the United States is in China are competing, and the the locus of their competition centers on economics. And so, if the United States and China are trying to compete with one another over infrastructure, over technology, that that I, as a citizen of an African country, could be the beneficiary of that competition. So, China comes in with certain infrastructure projects or development projects, and then the United States comes in with its own uh, projects in an attempt to compete. And so, perhaps I can benefit. So, there's sort of an additive competition from the perspective of somebody living in Africa. Uh, the concern, though, and, and, and Corbis, this goes back to a point that you've made on a, on, on a few occasions during our conversation, there is also a concern that if, right, I mean, right now that we don't have a hot war, uh, we don't have sort of hot proxy wars or civil wars that are occurring under the auspices of U.S.-China competition, but uh, as you said, uh, the Cold War, um, while it was perhaps cold at the highest level of analysis, namely the United States and Soviet Union didn't directly uh, engage in armed confrontation, the, the rivalry between them spawned uh, proxy wars, civil wars, genocides that were enormously destructive uh, and that wreaked havoc, uh, not only in, in Africa, but, but across the world. And so there's also a concern that if I'm living in Africa, I say, well, if this competition between the United States and China continues to intensify, what happens if it is no longer restricted to the economic domain? What if it begins to take on uh, military dimensions? And so there has to be some concern that while for the time being, we may be able to profit from competition between the United States and China. So China offers us projects, America offers us projects, but what if that competition turns hot? Um, and so there is certainly a they certainly are, they, I think they had the Cold War in the back of their minds, and they are wary of the emergence of a new Cold War that could assume military dimensions and that could once again uh, make Africa uh, the, the uh, a battleground or, or a battleground for, for a hot war or for a colonial, uh, neo-colonial ambition. So there's, I, I would say that there is sort of interest and excitement right now, but there are also in the long term, there has to be concern about what long-term implications of U.S.-China competition are for the continent. 
Ali Wine is a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation in the United States. The RAND Corporation, for those of you who are not familiar, is one of America's oldest uh, policy think tanks. Uh, very, very famous, and uh, a lot of good research comes out of uh, out of there. Also, they're neighbors of mine down in Santa Monica, California. So, uh, you know, one day you got to make it out there, Ali, to Santa Monica, where the weather's a little bit better than in, uh, in in Washington. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, everybody. If you want to follow what Ali's doing, you got to read his article. Is this the beginning of a new Cold War? It's on the Rand website at rand r a n d dot org. I'll put a link in our show notes. And I'll put links to some of uh, Ali's other writings as well for you to read. He's a really, really interesting thinker right now on big issues affecting the U.S.-China relationship. And the U.S.-China relationship, of course, is one of those things that's not confined to the United States or the Chinese. This has global impact. So even though we didn't focus explicitly on Africa today, whatever happens in this U.S.-China relationship will have a direct consequence on the economies, the currencies, and the political stability of a lot of African countries because of the the, the, the the aftershocks of whatever happens in the Sino-American relationship. So, Ali, thank you so much. I know you are actually quite present on social media, so if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much to, to you and to Corbus for having me on. It was really a, a, a pleasure to to engage, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of your podcast, as, as you know. Um, so folks can follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, so my handle is just at Ali underscore wine, and I, I'm pretty active on uh, Twitter, uh, and I you know, post whether it's, it's, it's work that I'm doing or reacting to work that others are doing, but I'm pretty active there, so folks can follow me on Twitter, uh, they can also uh, they can also go to my uh, web uh, my web page at Rand and they can follow some of the work that I'm doing there. But I would say the Twitter is probably the best way for folks to to engage with what I'm working on and thinking about. And wine is spelled W Y N E, not W I N E. So Ali Wine. That's right. There we go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you today. Kobus, I am so relieved to hear that Ali was refuting the idea that we are getting back into a Cold War. This is going to be something, but we just don't have a name for it. And I think it's particularly relevant for our discussion in China-Africa relations, because you and I have said that for many, many years, that the idea of applying a label like China being a neo-colonial power or imperialism or China, you know, taking these references of 18th century, 19th century, and 20th century political concepts and applying them to things that are distinctly 21st century, simply because they're convenient on one or two points, but never really fulfill the entire meaning of those words. We simply cannot draw on history for what's happening today in China-Africa relations or in U.S.-China relations. So taking that Cold War metaphor and applying it to the United States and China just doesn't fit, and Ali gave all of the reasons why that there is no ideological struggle here, no coalition that's on the Chinese side like the Soviets had in their war against the United States. So for me, that, that's a very important takeaway from this. That's not to say that there isn't strategic competition. And at the end of the day, political scientists are going to have to come up with a language to define what this is. And they're going to have to also come up with a language to define what the Chinese are doing in Africa. But to me, these are both products of the 21st century and globalization that are impossible to put into a box of the 20th century, 19th century, 18th century concepts. 
Except that they do still, you know, they, they, they didn't evolve in isolation from, from both the concepts and the, and the political and economic realities of the 20th century. So I think that's the difficult thing is, you know, to a large extent, as I said before, you know, Africa is still suffering from the previous Cold War. Um, and that Cold War shaped what life is like in Africa to a large extent. Um, so one has to, it's, it's a difficult kind of balancing act of, you know, balancing innovative thinking and, and, and realizing what is really is new and what what we don't have an easy precedent for and what was directly caused by the past. Um, and I think in, in the, this kind of conflict between between the US and China, you know, the, the difficulty of, of putting it into this kind of Cold War metaphor and then also particularly kind of doing it not only in terms of the US versus China, you know, which is in itself is a, is a, is a problematic kind of opposition, you know, to set up, but then to, to make, to personalize it into Trump versus Xi Jinping. I think papers over to which extent a lot of the of the problems that the two are blaming each other for are domestic problems. You know, um, the way that, that the U.S. still is suffering from from decisions from the Bush era in in terms of how much money was sunk into into foreign military engagement, and from the the fallout of the financial crisis. Whereas China is, you know, is, is suffering from you know certain kind of structural inefficiencies that are being with especially within state owned organizations that are being protected by a growing, a growing authoritarianism under the Xi, um, Xi regime, you know, kind of where where it's. I, I saw a startling kind of number coming out of Morgan Stanley this week, where they were they said it now takes three dollars of debt to create one dollar of growth in China. You know, and and the and that debt is shielded to a large extent. You know, kind of among others by the rhetoric of China needing to protect its national industries against this kind of assault from from outside. So so it, it worries me how the language of of conflict and the language of Cold War actually stops both sides from looking at what the prob the domestic problems are. You know, kind of uh, that are causing some of these problems. So next week we're going to get back on track with a stronger link to Africa. Uh, we've got Professor Joshua Eisenman from the University of Texas at Austin, who's going to join us. And he together is working with Professor David or Ambassador David Shin uh, at George Washington University and thinking a lot about the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. But we thought today, by having this discussion with Ali, to really set the table for where we are in the U.S.-China relationship so that, again, we can expound on that to figure out what's going on and how it'll impact Africa, because it will have an impact. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that's going to happen there. So, but we'd like to hear what you think. Do you agree with the critics who say we are, in fact, in a new Cold War? Or are you more on the side of where Ali and I are coming from that says, well, kind of, but not really? Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Share, uh, you know, send us your, uh, you know, your thoughts. Kobus, is your email working now? Yes. Good. Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. I'm Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Send us your questions, your comments, your feedback. Let us know if there's topics that you like. We always love to hear from you. We're also on all the various social media platforms. Links are in all of our show notes, and you can follow us on LinkedIn as well. And, and quickly before we go, I just want to give a, a quick shout out to everybody who organized the first PodFest China conference in Shanghai, and they were so kind to invite me to speak, and everybody was really, really uh, just incredibly nice to, you know, we had a lot of exchanges, and Kobus, we are, uh, we have a lot of followers in Shanghai, and that was very exciting to meet quite a few of them, so Rebecca... 
thank you so much for for inviting me. And also, I want to uh, give a quick shout out to the Development Reimagined team here in Beijing, where I am today. Uh, Hannah Ryder's group uh, in Beijing was very kind to come out and meet me today. And uh, so just a quick shout out to them. And they're also big followers of the show. So we really appreciate uh, all of their support as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Beijing. We'll be back again next week with another show. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.